Let's begin with the word of prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord, as we come to your word, we want to invite the Holy Spirit to be the interpreter of the word, to be the one who explains the word to us, the one who applies it to our heart, to our minds, to renew our minds and to change our hearts to be more like you. Thank you for the Apostle Paul's example and for his um, faithfulness to write down these instructions to us. And so help us see how they apply to us 2,000 years later because it's the eternal word of God. So help us apply it, Lord, and be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, welcome to all the guests that are here with us this morning. Good to have you with us. And today, you happen to have joined us when we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to go over verses 1 to 15 in 1 Corinthians 9. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage to you? Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority or does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this right, rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So as we read the passage, it appears uh, to me, at first glance anyway, that the Apostle Paul has been forced to defend himself against some in the church who would prefer somebody else lead the church. 
or be their apostle. They wanted the church to turn to Cephas or to Apollos as their, as their main leader and just forget about Paul's years of teaching them. Maybe they didn't like his style or maybe they didn't like his appearance. You know, later in the second century, they said he was a little short man with a big hooked nose and a bald head. Um, we don't know that that's the fact, but that's the, the story that's been passed down to us. Or, or even some of the things that he taught, perhaps they were a little uncomfortable with. And so they criticized the fact that he didn't receive financial support from them. You know, when you don't like someone, it's kind of easy to pick out little things that, that you can criticize. You're kind of watching for those things. And even if they're real or imaginary or maybe you guessed motives or something, you uh, your mind can create those things. The Bible is about God and his relationship with us and our condition. And it spells it out in really down-to-earth terms. It's mostly about problems that we face due to our sinful nature and how God is the answer to all our problems. While God's transcendent, in other words, he's above and beyond this, this physical plane, He's also very imminent. He's right here with us in our problems and has the practical answer to all of them, which is usually just a relationship with him. This letter is an attempt by the Apostle Paul to keep the church of Corinth united. Church splits are one of those self-inflicted tragedies that man produces if because of personal preferences, they were able to nullify Paul's influence, they would probably do the same with the next apostle and the next, destroying the church in the process. Every one of us, every human being has a personal preference in style. Some like flamboyant, loud preachers who move around a lot and wave their arms, and others like a well-studied delivery of the text while others want someone who looks impressive and tells really good jokes. And so criticism of pastors is common, even when they're giving their all. That's not to say that there are some who deserve criticism uh, or take advantage of being their own boss and, and use their time selfishly. Every pastor is open to criticism of personal preference on a week-by-week -week basis. They're on call 24-7. They share the deepest hurts and pains of all their parishioners. They're expected to teach and preach an inspiring and challenging message without mistakes week after week after week and oversee all the affairs of the church, physical and spiritual. Their life is always scrutinized as well as the lives of their children. And I know that from firsthand because I was a PK, pastor's kid. It's a pressure that causes 50% of pastors to either quit or move to another church within their first five years of ministry. This, pa this passage is Paul's defense that he's not only given up his freedom as a Christian, but also his rights as an apostle so that the message would not be hindered. But first he has to make a case for, before he makes the case for the, that he doesn't, um, that, that he isn't uh, 
receiving money from them isn't a problem. First, he has to make a case that it's right that full-time ministers be supported by the church. Verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm an, not, an, not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul asked these four questions with the expectation that everyone would naturally respond in the affirmative. Why can't he choose to be self-supporting if he wants to be? Don't his miracles and, and the salvation of those in Corinth affirm his apostleship? One of the qualifications for being an apostle was seeing the risen Lord, and he saw him on the road to Damascus. Paul was the one who planted this church, and almost everyone in the church had come to Christ through Paul's ministry. That was the proof of his apostleship, the seal of his apostleship. In other words, that they came to faith in Christ through his ministry proves he was God's official messenger to them. The Corinthians debate about who's a better leader probably pointed to some minor differences in teaching or personal preferences. However, it was Paul who introduced them to Jesus. The other leaders were just coming along behind and, and helping them to mature. Some people today want to present themselves as apostles and attempt to exert authority over local church elders when they had nothing to do with leading the flock of believers to the Lord. They want to take credit for what God has done through others for their own glory. Paul's exerting his authority by reminding them that it was God who gave him this role as the apostle to the church of Corinth. He's pointing out that God's assignment of him as their apostle was his choice, was God's choice. And they were trying, some in the church were trying to overturn that choice. Verses three to six, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Now, it's not clear whether verse 2, or I'm sorry, verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me, refers to the first two verses, um, in which in that case, uh, Paul would be saying that the fact that the Corinthian church existed was his defense, or if his defense is the following verses, verses four to six. If it applies to those following verses, then his defense is that other teachers sought support for themselves and their wives from the church, while Paul and his fellow minister Barnabas worked to support themselves, self-supported, as they ministered to the church at Corinth. The teaching minister has a right to be supported financially by the church, but Paul gave up the right so they would realize the sincerity of his efforts. The use of legal defense terms in these verses suggests that Paul felt as if the church in Corinth had made a general accusation against him for not accepting financial support. He speaks of it in terms of having a script that a person or a group has 
has written for the expected behavior. Itinerant preachers had a right for financial support, but Paul didn't fit their script. And so there had to be something wrong in their eyes. Corinthians took pride in how much that they paid their tutors. You know, if the more you paid a tutor in Corinth, the more important the tutor was. In other words, if he was in great demand and you paid a lot of money, he must be really special. It's kind of like uh, parents today who said, oh yeah, I'm paying so much money for my kid to go to Harvard. And they're really bragging. <laughs> it's the same idea. It's a special school, so you really pay a lot. So if Paul doesn't charge, well then, you know, we can't boast about how much we give him. Those who were seeking to find fault with Paul took offense to his insistence of self-support. You know, the, the history of many churches, at least in my lifetime, and uh, I remember in my father's lifetime as well, that those who financially support the church feel the pastors obligated to hear their preferences and to carry out their suggestions. You know, most churches, we... we tend to see the mega churches, but the vast majority of churches in America are about this size, even smaller. And usually there's one person who's the big giver. And uh, I remember one, one pastor friend in town received a list from the main giver of, at the church of the things he could preach on and the things he shouldn't touch. <laughs> as if the man was somehow the voice of the Holy Spirit. Paul knew he had a right to receive support, but in this particular city, he wanted to avoid, avoid the complication of any appearance of preaching for finances as his motivation. Instead, he set an example for lay people who worked to support themselves and still advance the kingdom of God. This allowed him to be free from any unhealthy influence from the big donors and avoid any accusation of preaching for financial gain. There's an interesting phrase in verse 5, uh, which gives us a bit of information that we don't find anywhere else in Scripture. Jesus' half-brothers also traveled around the churches preaching. Now, we know James did. He was the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. But this is the only place we hear that his brothers also traveled around and preaching. I can imagine, you know, the people wanted to hear stories about Jesus in, in his youth and wanted to hear what the brothers say about what it was like to grow up with him. And th they probably confessed how they always te teased him. Mama always loves you best, you know. <laughs> Or how they disliked Jesus because Mary would often say, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? <laughs> no wonder they didn't want to receive him before the resurrection. <laughs> that sibling rivalry thing. Verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So if anyone should have been supported by the church, it was Paul. He uses several parallels in the natural world and in scripture to illustrate his case. He's saying that he agrees with them, that he has a right to be supported. 
He's a soldier of the Lord, and soldiers receive a salary. He's a farmer in God's field, and farmers enjoy the produce from the, from the field. He's a shepherd of the flock, and the shepherds are nourished by milk from the flock. Verses 8 through 10. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle ox an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing the crop. Paul uses the scripture to prove his point. You know, when you, he always does. All, th all throughout all his letters, he's always referring back to Old Testament scripture. And uh, in this particular point, he's inspired to use a verse about oxen from the law. The laws of Moses forbid the ox to be muzzled as it was treading out the grain so that it, it could eat. You know, you don't let the ox eat and <laughs> he's not going to be good for very long. Even animals should be rewarded for their labor. So Paul's using a rabbinical method of how much more then? We see that a lot. Jesus used the same, same pattern. How much more? If this, then how much more than this? If the oxen is able to eat when he works, how much more then those who labor for God should be able to be fed? Paul then gives us, a, he's giving this useful tool of interpretation. It's not just for the sake of the animal. It's that too, but it's a divine principle. If animals should be able to eat, then certainly people should be as well. The laborer should be rewarded with the fruit of his labor. The farmer works in hope of a future crop. He doesn't plow, plant, weed, water just to give it all away. He expects to partake in the harvest. And if someone threshes the grain for the farmer, he too should receive just compensation. Verse 11 and 12a, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? The one who ministers spiritual things should be supported with their physical needs. This is another, uh, this time greater to lesser. Last time was lesser to greater, this time greater to lesser. The spiritual was supplied by Paul, so the least they could do was supply his physical needs. The church should respect his authority over the teacher who's just passing through. You know, people are often critical, and the enemy will use anything to keep people from believing and uniting together in Christ. Some people in the church were upset that he doesn't accept that support, but if he did accept it, there would be those who would not listen thinking he was doing it just for money. It's one of those catch-22s. Darned if you do and darned if you don't. Or what he may have been alluding to is that supporters would want him to dilute the gospel. It's one of those decisions that you know will be judged harshly no matter which you choose. Paul chose the one that would be most beneficial to the flock. Too often, pastors are underpaid. After all, they only work on Sunday, right? Even that's half a day. I'm grateful that's not the case here. And, and generally, it, it is less true today than it was in the past. Um, 
But still, in many small churches, there is a church boss, that main giver. Um, there's a book called Unintentional Dragons about how many churches have been uh, stifled and don't grow because the church boss is an unintentional dragon. He thinks he's doing the best thing for the congregation when he keeps hindering the congregation. Um, that person will offer the prospective pastor, pastor a, a parsonage and a small salary, barely enough to get by. But then if the church grows, he'll usually fire the pastor and look for someone else so he can maintain control. I've seen that happen over and over again. When I came to Wayside 20 years ago, the search committee asked me, what is the minimum you, minimum you can get by on? So I said, well, I think I could get by on this. And they said, oh, good. And then they paid me 2,000 less than that. <laughs> But God is faithful. If you know where you're supposed to be, you know God will supply. And they let me teach at the Christian school to make up the difference. On the other hand, there was, uh, I knew of a pastor in Texas, you would know his name if I said it, that every year his congregation for Christmas gave him a new Mercedes. So churches can go to either extreme, right? They can try to starve their pastor or they can almost worship him, idolize him. The rule of thumb should be that the preaching pastor who serves full-time should receive the average income of the congregation he serves. Then he can more readily relate to their condition and their needs. There are those pastors, however, who fleece the flock. They promise blessing if the congregation will give to the Lord, and they're the Lord's servants, so you can just write the check out to them. They will gladly prophesy a blessing over you for that gift. Of course, it's a manipulation of our own carnal spirit of greed. But they usually don't stay long because when the blessing never appears, they're found out to be frauds. I personally witnessed this in a church in the Verde Valley. All the prophetic words of abundance never materialized in the church or in the congregation. 12b, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. While Paul had made a strong defense for supporting those who preach and teach, he refused to apply the right to himself. He, didn't, he would do anything not to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. We've already seen in, in the verse before this chapter that he was willing to never eat meat again if it was going to stumble a brother. Now he's saying he will preach in the day and the evening and work in the afternoon when everyone else is resting just to be sure that finances didn't get in the way of the gospel. Uh, that, that's how they lived at that time. You work up to, it's kind of like the uh, Hispanic culture where you have siesta in the afternoon. It's hot in that part of the world. And so they work till about one o'clock and then they sleep, sleep in the afternoon and go back to work about four o'clock and work till six or seven. But the apostle Paul would take that time when everyone else was resting to, to do his leather work 
to support himself. In other words, he'd teach and preach all day up till two. Then when everyone went to rest, he'd go to work. And then when they all got up from their rest, he'd teach and preach. He was 110%. He says in this verse that he's willing to endure anything to be sure the gospel comes through clearly. May God grant all pastors such a heart for the church. And may all of us have such a heart for others to be able to hear the gospel. This set him apart from the other teachers that came to Corinth. It sets him apart from most preachers today. Some do endure a lot that they shouldn't have to, but for the sake of the gospel, for their great love for Jesus and the message, they will do it. Others go when things get tough or when they don't get what they want. Jesus called them hirelings. They flee when they see the wolf coming. Now consider the tenacity of the Apostle Paul. He would work harder than anyone. He constantly had concern for the churches on his heart. Everywhere he went, the Judaizers opposed him and persecuted him. He was stoned and left for dead. He was beaten with rods and on and on. But he endured. Imprisoned, he wrote letters to the churches and proclaimed the gospel to the rulers and judges. He was unstoppable. He followed the example of his Lord, and he moved at his direction. His life was not his own, for he declared it was the life of Christ in him. Would you like to have that same kind of zeal and passion? I don't see anybody going, me. (laughs) Let me give my body and my entire life and all my time for Jesus. Now, we aren't all called to such a demanding life, but I believe we're all called to have the same kind of love for others. He was a demonstration of Jesus' teaching that he who is forgiven much loves much. Do you know how much you've been forgiven? You may not have killed Christians like the Apostle Paul did, but remember Jesus said that if there is anger in your heart, you're liable to the judgment. And if you have merely looked on a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. You know, one of the things we tend to overlook when we read the Gospels is these convicting sayings of Jesus that just point out how sinfully depraved our hearts can be. We would rather not see that. But the wonderful thing about it is when we see it, we realize how great the grace and love of God is to provide forgiveness through Jesus. And it makes us love him even more. Verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Next, Paul uses the Old Testament parallel to the preacher of the New Testament. Now we're not mediators between God and man like the Old Testament priests were, But we proclaim his message like the priest did. And the priests who serve in the temple are supported by the offerings. In the same way, those who serve the congregation by preaching and teaching are supported by offerings. Verse 14, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and missionaries should be financially supported by the church. Jesus said as much. Now we go, wait a minute, where did he say that? 
Well, there's not exactly the same quote, but when Jesus sent out the disciples two by two, sent out the 72 and so forth, he said, don't bring any money with you. Don't bring any extra shoes or clothing. The workman is worthy of his hire, right? In other words, those who you minister to are going to support you as you go out and preach and teach. So we think probably Matthew 10, 10 and 11 is what Paul was referring to. However, Paul later on in the, gospel, in the letter to the Corinthians, he does have a quote from Jesus that we don't find anywhere else, which we assume he heard from the apostles that, that lived those three years with Jesus. So they should never abuse their role by slacking off and giving less than their all. That would be to cheat the Lord who is supporting them through his body. They should give of themselves to those to whom they minister, just as Jesus did, and as we see in this passage that Paul did. Verse 15, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. So he's, he's built up the case for support, and then he says, but I ain't taking it. He's not writing to convince them to support him. He's sharing his heart for the ministry. He's emphasizing that he has chosen to give up that right so that they might hear the gospel undiluted by any sponsor's influence. He's declaring his, his self-support was to preempt those who would accuse them of financial motives. And he's also doing it for a heavenly reward, not an earthly one. And he would rather die than be forced to accept an income. In, in the Greek, it's actually like a, the sentence is chopped in half. It, it's, he says, I would rather die. And then a different thought picks up. It's like he was so passionate about this. That's how zealous he was to be sure nothing could be used against him that would undermine the message of the gospel. He could boast in that zeal, but he would never boast in the fact that he proclaimed the gospel because he believed he was under obligation to God to do so. To deliver the message was his duty. How he did so demonstrated his love for God and for the Corinthians. So while the emphasis on this passage is on the need to support those in ministry and, and Paul's freedom to be self-supporting, we can see in this passage his love for the Lord and his willingness to be spent for the sake of the gospel and the well-being of the churches. His heart was undivided. He exemplified what he taught in the last chapter to be willing to give up our rights so as not to stumble a weaker believer. He had to press his case to see that the church stayed united and continued to grow in Christ and to avoid letting personal preferences hinder their growth in Christ. What a zeal he had for the Lord and for his body. May our passion for the same increase in us. Amen. Amen. Joe, would you lead us in the closing song? And then I'll give the benediction.